Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Longtime style reporter Dana Thomas's book, Fashionopolis, is an indictment of the true costs of fashion, like poisoned water, crushed workers, and overflowing landfills that never quite makes it onto the price tag of a dress or a pair of jeans. Between 2000 and 2014, the annual number of garments produced doubled to 100 billion. 14 new garments per person, per year, for every person on the planet. The average garment is only worn seven times before being tossed, assuming it's not one of the 20 billion clothing items that go unsold and unworn. It's no surprise, then, that the fashion industry accounts for at least 10% of global carbon emissions and 20% of all industrial water pollution. Though the industry employs one out of every six people globally, fewer than 2% of them earn a living wage, meaning that more than 98% of workers are not only underpaid, they also toil in unsafe, unsanitary conditions. But change is underfoot. Retailers are shifting their supply models. Circular and slow fashion are on the rise, and new technology is making the manufacture of new and recycled fabrics cleaner. With the rise of fast fashion companies like Shein only making the aforementioned statistics worse, we're revisiting this conversation with Dana Thomas from 2019. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Dana. My pleasure. So we know that there are a lot of damning statistics associated with fashion, and especially fast fashion. Um, What do you see after writing this book, after compiling all of that data and all of these stories, what do you see as the greatest problems with the fashion industry today? Volume. It's simple as that, volume. We just put out way too much of everything and do it too fast and change it up too easily. You know, in the old days, Fashion designers had a look. They had a, a, a particular voice and a silhouette that, that was the, the core of their design. And they built upon that. I remember Mr. Valentino telling me that he had his way of doing things and that he liked when you could wear a blouse from one season with a coat from another season. They spoke to each other. They were related. It was a, it, there was a common thread, basically, a, a, a link between everything he did. In the early 90s, Mucha Prada really did change that up for everybody when she started putting out a new collection each season that was the exact opposite, like a radical departure from what she'd done the season before. So you got excited to see what was the new idea, but it made everything that she had done last season passe, like completely over. And she set a new cycle that everybody else followed. I remember the very first one she did was this collection we called Ugly Chic, wild, crazy prints in what were referred to as sort of like 1970s or McDonald's colors. It like electrified fashion. It was very cool, but it had nothing to do with what she had done previously. It was a radical departure. And then after that, she went back and did something that was sort of like Belle de Jour, um, Audrey Hepburn, almost Saint Laurent-like, like a season or two after. Completely different. So then those McDonald's colored clothes got shunted to the back of the closet or even, you know, to a charity shop because they were out of fashion. Now, that has always existed. That's what the core of fashion is, that things come and things go, but not to the speed that it is today. I mean, now designers put out 16 or 20 collections a year, 
big companies. When John Galliano left Dior and his own house, he was overseeing 32 collections a year, not two, as he was when he first started. And by doing that, we're filling, we're filling up our stores, our closets, and our landfills with these clothes that just keep cycling in and out of our lives, like fast food and fast fashion. But it's even on the luxury level. Right, right. I think it's really important to talk about high-end fashion in conjunction with this because fast fashion is a response to all of that. And in a way, it just exacerbates all of the problems that we already have inherent with this model. And to that end, I think it would be really instructive if you could tell the story of how Zara became Zara, because it really lays out, I think, not only how fast fashion was born, but how the entire industry has shifted in the past three decades in response to that, in response to Mucha Prada's changing lines. Right. Because exactly that. What fashion did was see what Mucha was doing and then combine it with the Zara pace. So Zara started out, I guess in, I, you would say in the, in the 70s. The owner, Amancio Ortega, has been in the garment business since he was a kid in Spain. But he started this company where he, he adopted what the, um, the U.S. industry actually began, which was called Quick Response Manufacturing, QR. The American manufacturing and fashion industry came up with QR as a way to combat offshoring because the offshore companies were doing things faster. And so they said, let's have a system where we respond quickly to changes in the market and get things into the stores faster. This will help our industry and help with employment because they were losing jobs. And it worked. Zara saw this quick response program and took it and applied it to style changes, not just volume changes. You know, it was basically quick response was we'll put 10 jeans into the store. And when those jeans are sold, we can churn out 10 more jeans and put them in the store. But Zara started adapting it to styles. Like, look, oh, that that particular outfit did well. Let's make a bazillion of them and put them in hundreds of stores around the world fast. And they started swapping out designs quicker. So they last maybe two weeks in the store instead of a whole season. And other businesses that were in the middle market, like H&M, Topshop, Mango in Spain, Gap in the United States, and Benetton in Italy, they all picked up on this, this rhythm. And then it spread to the luxury industry as well. And now everybody is on that cycle. Everybody. Right. Right. Well, I mean, and the only way that you can afford to buy a new top at Zara or at H&M every week or every two weeks, um, whatever the statistic is for the average American consumer, is because it's so cheap. And the reason it's so cheap is because of what you mentioned with, you know, globalization and offshoring and shunting these jobs into developing countries where the cost of manufacture is cheaper, but also labor laws are laxer or non-existent. Uh, Oversight's pretty much non-existent. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like we've had decades of data and of calamities, you know, in the fashion world and outside of it, because, you know, it's not just clothing that's manufactured in Vietnam or Bangladesh. But in fashion, there have been some really high profile ones like the Rana Plaza collapse that killed over a thousand people and injured 2,500, the Tazreen fire before that, sweatshops exposed outside of Los Angeles. You know, it's been debacle after debacle after debacle, but nothing seems to change. I mean, why do you think that is? And, and why do you think the response from corporations has been so lackluster? 
Well, the response from corporations has been lackluster because it's incredibly profitable. As the owner of Zara has proved, you know, he became at one point the second richest man in the world. You can make a lot of money by paying people pennies. Even if you're selling it cheap because of the economies of scale, you're still making vast amounts of money. The rule of thumb is if you paid nineteen ninety nine for that suit or that dress, the person who made it was paid 19 cents. If you paid $100 for it, they earned $1. So there is no such thing as getting a good deal on something because somebody along the way has gotten a really rotten deal. And it may be in a sweatshop. It may just be in a perfectly clean and safe factory, but it's still in Bangladesh where they're only earning $68 a month, state regulated. And that's not, that's below the living, was considered a living wage, which means that it's not enough to pay for food and home to, for their families. And then they have to go out and find two or three other jobs, and they're working nonstop, and they're in a trap. You know, we say we're creating good jobs overseas. We're not creating good jobs. Yes, we're creating jobs, but they're not necessarily good jobs. And the people who are in them, while it may be lifting them out of extreme poverty, they're still stuck in a cycle of poverty that they can't get out of. So do consumers or do... American legislators writing the laws that these American companies have to adhere to have any way to change that? Oh, there are no laws. There are no laws to adhere to. And in fact, I don't know if we can regulate this industry because it's so global and so fractured. But there has been, you know, a bit of not necessarily regulation, but oversight where brands got together after the Rana Plaza collapse that killed more than a 1,000 people in Bangladesh six years ago. And they put together a safety accord with inspectors. Now, they'd each been doing inspections for years and years, but it was all a sham and, you know, inspectors were paid off. And this time, they, you know, several hundred brands banded together and said, no, here is our list of what you must do for safety, particularly fire safety, but also building safety and worker rights and you must meet these or we're not going to work with you. And it did raise the level of safety in the factories. The Bangladesh Manufacturers Association would like to see that accord thing disappear because improving the factories to those standards costs money. And so then the manufacturers have a smaller slice of profits because they have to invest in the factories. They have to do things like put the wiring you know, in the ceiling instead of dangling from the walls. And they have to have safety exits and they have to unlock them and not chain them closed so it can get regulated, but there's still a battle for it. And as long as you have the pressure of profit, basically, you have the pressure of greed in the mix. Well, I mean, you do highlight some who are running smaller companies with not perhaps as egregious a profit. Who are doing it right. Yeah, exactly. Who are doing it right. You know, like Alabama Channon, Sally Fox, Elizabeth Pape. I mean, how are they making fashion sustainable, basically? Is it sustainable? Well, the first thing they're doing is they're doing everything with integrity. That's a that's a big step. Um, mm-hmm. At Alabama Channon, you know, she she charges a lot for her clothes, and when you see the price, you go what? But then you think about it, and you go, okay, I understand what I'm paying for. It's organic cotton that was picked, you know, that was in a field that wasn't over farmed with GMOs and chemicals. So you're getting less of a yield from that field. But it's a better yield, and it's a cleaner yield, and it's good for the planet and the people who work in the field. Then it's woven nearby, not overseas, and so you're having to pay workers in those mills a fair wage 
and probably some retirement and some health benefits and all those things that are built into their wages, that costs money too. It's not going to be $68 a month. They're going to be paid more like $68 a day. And then you're going to be uh, paying for the people who are sewing them. And they're sewing them at Alabama Channon one by one by hand made to order. And they too are paid a decent wage. They're paid a very good wage because they have to be able to live well. I mean, they have to live a middle-class standard like we did in the 1950s when we had the golden age of manufacturing in America. And so that that's all built into the price of her clothes. That's what you're paying for. At the same time, you're also paying for the longevity of the clothes, meaning that you're going to wear those clothes until they're falling apart and they will not fall apart next week or in a month. You will wear them for years. So yes, you may be paying you know, 10 times more than you would pay at Zara, but you're going to wear it 10 times longer, 10 times as many times. And all the people along the way making that t-shirt are living a much better life thanks to your investment. And that's how we should see, that's how we should see buying our clothes. We should see it as an investment because it is. You're investing in people, you're investing in the planet. You're not just buying stuff and consuming it and throwing it away. And if we think of it that way, we'll have more regard for what we're wearing and for the people who make it. Well, and it used to be a luxury, right? We used to buy way less clothing and wear it for much longer and Absolutely. repair it. And people knew Absolutely. how to put buttons back on and like darn their socks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and redying. I remember when what we've started doing again was something I did as a kid that when something like we had socks that were mismatched, we tie dyed them all. So then they still mismatch, but they're kind of cool and you can keep wearing them because why should you throw away one sock because you can't find its mate that perfectly matches it? We've forgotten how to do that, but we've forgotten how to do that in part because it was so easy to just get new clothes and so affordable. So I want to ask about affordability because not everyone can afford to buy a hyperlocal Alabama Channon t-shirt, even if they'd like to. And one thing about fast fashion is that it has democratized, in a way, access to a kind of ever-changing style that was once the purview of only the really rich. So how do you balance sustainability and ethics with accessibility? How do you make sure that it's possible today for someone making poverty wages in America to afford a shirt that isn't made by someone making poverty wages somewhere else? Right. I would say we go back to that idea, you know, that you save your money and you buy one really good thing that you love as opposed to 10 things that you're okay with and that you wear three or four times and then you toss You know, when I was a teenager, I saved up my money and bought a coat and I put it on layaway and I babysitted to make the money when I was making a dollar an hour and it cost more than a hundred dollars. So that was a hundred hours of babysitting. That's a lot of babysitting. And I bought that jacket and I cherished it so much. It is still in my closet and I still wear it. The average garment today is worn seven times before it's thrown away. Given that I'm wearing mine hundreds of times until they're falling apart, that means there are a lot that are never worn. And they're thrown away, which is kind of crazy, instead of being handed down or resold or consigned. Consignment is, is on the rise. And I would say that, that those, are, those are options for people who don't have a lot of money but want to have a lot of fashion and style and taste. There are options. Stella McCartney, who is a luxury fashion designer, said, you know, I know my clothes are expensive, so buy them on the sale. Buy them on the sale of the sale. Buy them secondhand. Rent them. And those are all different options. That we have things like the real real where you can go and buy something for a tenth of the price that it was when it was new. 
And it's, as one friend of mine who's in the vintage business calls it, pre-loved as opposed to used. (laughs) Or you can rent. I've been renting clothes since I discovered this company in Paris while working on the book. I rented a gown to wear to the Cannes Film Festival when I had to cover an event, a kind of gown that I would have never been able to afford. And I might not have actually bought because I would have thought, oh, it's so flamboyant. But boy, was it fun to wear for the evening. And then I returned it. And how many times do I have worn that dress? A handful, right? Right. Well, and that level of accessibility to resale markets like the Real Real or Thread Up or what have you would not be possible on this scale without the internet. Which brings me to the question of how other technologies are changing the fashion industry. I mean, I, I do think that slow fashion and definitely buying less and buying better is one answer. But that requires a huge shift in consumer mentality and company perspectives on profit. And until the culture changes and volume does go down, something has to happen to make jeans manufacture, for example, less filthy. You know, so what are some of the other technologies that you encountered in your book that you think are improving the fashion manufacturing process? Well, one of the that I, I highlight in the book and that you just mentioned is a company called Genologia in Valencia, Spain, that has come up with a system to make the, the finishing of jeans, as it's called, much, much cleaner. In the old days, when I was a teenager, you bought jeans that were pre-washed and it took six months to make them soft enough that you could sit down without getting, you know, without going, ouch, that hurt. <laughs> They were stiff as cardboard, and they were dark, dark, dark. And so it took a while to break them in. Now you get them already broken in. That process that's breaking them in for you is called finishing. And it's stone washing, it's acid washing, it's, you know, sanding and rasping things. And, you know, for years that has been done in factories. I saw one in Vietnam where they're sanding them all day long with these, like, high-pitched sanders that sound like dentist drills. And they're often not wearing masks. The factory is 100 degrees with fans blowing the dust around and the filaments around and they're inhaling this, which makes them sick. They're washing them in these big vats and the water's everywhere and everyone's hands are dyed blue. It just seems so unhealthy. And then they dump all this straight into the river. And I saw a river in Ho Chi Minh City that was dead. It was completely dead. And it was because it had been the dumping ground of a jeans washing, a jeans finishing factory. Genealogia has come up with a system where they do the distressing in a box with lasers and it's run from a clean room across the way on computers. So you're not inhaling filaments. There's an automatic vacuum that sucks up all the dust and the lasers do all the distressing. You don't have to sand them with a rasp. Then they uh, do the washing with a system that has micro nano bubbles and it, and it softens the fabric through this, it's very high tech that I don't quite understand, but I stuck my hand in and it's like being in a steam room in a way, a cold steam room. And they wash it in that and that breaks down and then they're able to recover the water and reuse it and recycle it. So it only takes one glass of water to finish a pair of jeans instead of something like five or six gallons. And the less water, the better. And they can keep reusing that one glass of water for up to a month before they have to uh, dump it, and then they go through a filtration system and blah, blah, blah. They're working on coming up with a system where it takes no water to wash the jeans. Like, there's no waste. It's a zero-waste system. And that is heartwarming. Now, the good news, when I talked to them, they were hoping to land some of the big companies, but they hadn't yet. Since then, they have contracted with Levi's. 
which is the largest jeans manufacturer in the world. And I think they're also going to start working with PVH, which is, you know, the Calvin Klein company and Tommy Hilfiger and a couple others. So they're landing the big fish. If they can manage to get this system, or there are other companies that have come up with similar systems across the board in jeans finishing, that will change a big ecological impact on the planet, reduce it, maybe even eliminate it, which would be brilliant. Right. And that's like one big example of making fashion circular, too. If you can have just one input of water, say, and then have that one gallon circulate forever and ever and ever, then you're not creating that kind of waste. Exactly. What other kinds of circular initiatives are there out there? Well, there's good things like a woman I met in Nashville named Sarah Bellows, who's growing natural indigo. And it's the first major natural indigo production company in the United States in about 100 years. When I first met her, she was trying to just get 1% of the industry. She said, if I can get 1% of the denim in America naturally dyed, that's going to have a huge impact because synthetic indigo is incredibly toxic. And and it's now almost 100% of the industry is, is synthetic indigo. And when I went back and talked to her two years later, she said, well, it's going so well, we might actually get 3% of the business. And I was like, wow, well, if this woman can get 3% and then she can inspire a bunch of other people, we actually might see something like 10% of the jeans business, natural indigo, which is cleaner. And it's better for the environment in so many different ways, because indigo is one of the few plants that gives nitrogen back to the earth. That and soybeans are like the two biggest plants that do that. And she's doing it in a place where they used to have tobacco. And tobacco is one of the most leaching, hungry crops you can have and leached all the nitrogen out of the fields. So she's revitalizing fields across Tennessee that have been ravaged by tobacco farming for hundreds of years. And she's um, creating jobs, which is great. Plus the genes. Can we just talk about how beautiful the genes are with natural indigo dye? They're luminescent. Yeah. I mean, what I love about initiatives like hers and others, you know, is that there's this blending of high technology of really cutting edge stuff with nano bubbles and like synthesized leather in a lab but there's also a reaching back to older traditions and an understanding that like well actually maybe our foremothers were right and natural indigo really is great or you know organic color grown cotton or you like know, vegetable Sally Fox. tanned leather exactly yeah old school old school Exactly. I love the blending of the old and the new. It's like you said with Modern Meadow, where they're growing the leather in a lab. It's called biofabricated materials. They're not allowed to call it leather because apparently leather can only come from an animal. But they use the DNA of animals' hide to grow this biofabricated material. They're using an organic way to tan it, but, you know, old school. And I think they're going to work with folks like Hermes, so they're going to take this leather that's made in a lab and then have it hand-stitched into a handbag. There's another company out in San Francisco called Bolt Threads. They're making silk in a lab, but they're using the process that spiders use to make silk. So they've gone back to nature to understand how to do it, and then they're meshing that with high-tech in the digital age. Well, you know, the common thread between a lot of these initiatives that, you know, in the stories you tell is is a single person in some ways, you know, like someone who had a crazy idea to make, to synthesize this in a lab or someone like Stella McCartney, for example, who I always sort of had a vague idea of as like ahead of the curve on sustainability, but I didn't know like 
the ripple effects that she's had on institutions. Mm. I guess, like, what do you think the role is of these individual trailblazers, say, and the system at large? Because, you know, one person alone can't change anything, but one person positioned in the right spot with the right idea does seem to have a lot of good effects. I mean, Stella showed that you can be a profitable company and still have you know, integrity for things like not using fur and leather. She was in a luxury fashion group where most sales came from leather goods, and she became a profitable company a year ahead of schedule. So she showed that you can do it, and you can do it right. She showed if you do things right, that being sustainable is being less wasteful. And when you're wasteful in a company, that loses money. So she showed that if you have less and less waste, if you aim towards zero waste, you will have greater profits, that this is good business. And they've adopted that, and it's worked. Some of her moves were hard. You know, she she eliminated PVC from the use of her company when she saw how toxic it was. And she said that meant we couldn't use sequins in our clothes. She said, we're a fashion company. We're a luxury fashion company. We love sequins. But there was only one sequin at the time that wasn't PVC. So that was the only one we used. Well, now there are loads. Why? Because Stella McCartney got the entire caring group to stop using PVC, therefore stop using sequins with PVC. And the market answered with a whole slew of non-PVC sequins. So through force, integrity, conviction, she managed to change an industry and change one of the parts of the supply chain. And she's working on that in other ways. Yes, she's the first to admit that she has the power of celebrity behind her, thanks to dad. And she has the power of money behind her because she she comes from wealth. And she said, tomorrow I could turn around and walk away from this and I'd be fine. But she's using that in a good way, in a very positive way. And the ripple effect has been fantastic. She godmothers startups and helps them get their footing. She partners with them and uses their ideas in her collections. And then they have something to show other people. So she's using all of this in a way that's very influential and has a wide reach. And you may be wearing something right now that because of Stella McCartney is sustainable that 10 years ago it wouldn't have been. Yeah. Well, and, and now that they're all so successful, the flip side is that a lot of other companies are sort of piggybacking on it, some in good ways, some in earnest ways, like Levi's, you know, adopting all of these technologies, you know, other high fashion luxury companies going along with some of Stella McCartney's initiatives. But on the flip side, you also have a lot of greenwashing. It's true. We have companies like Zara and H&M saying, oh, we're doing capsule collections that are organic. They're still putting out 20 million, I think it is, items a year. They're certainly doing $20 million a year in sales. If they're putting out that much volume, no matter how organic the cotton is, it's still too much, right? And it's not organic. It's what's called sustainable cotton or better. They call it better cotton. Well, better cotton is a little bit misleading. It's still GMOs. You know, it's genetically modified. It's not necessarily that you're sourcing from those farms. You're just contributing to a fund that underwrites those farms, but you could still be getting your cotton anywhere. The farmers aren't always well treated in the better cotton system. It's it's a little fuzzy. If a company that's doing such huge volume is claiming they're green and they're or sustainable, you've got to scratch your head and go like, really? How can you be? That doesn't really make sense. Even if you are reading the label and trying to get things Right. As a consumer, I think it's pretty clear that stuff has to change 
at a manufactured level. How long do you think it's going to take? Oh, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time, and it won't change completely, to be sure. I think about the book Fast Food Nation, which was a very influential book for me. Eric Schlosser talked about, you know, how the industry really impacted so many different parts of our lives and how this food was terrible for us. It didn't go away. But what did happen was that McDonald's started carrying salad. <laughs> like, who would have ever thought of that, right? Mm-hmm. And and it also helped give rise to the organic and farm-to-table movement, which at the time of that book was seen as very rare and very expensive and was not available to many people. Now you have farmer's markets in all the big cities. There is change coming, and it's becoming more democratic. You don't get rid of the bad, but the good gets stronger and more available and more affordable. Then you have more of a balance. And if we can just get a balance, we're already way ahead of the game. Do you think we have time to strike that balance? I mean, given the onset of the climate catastrophe? Well, look how quickly we got rid of plastic straws. That happened in, what, 18 months? Plastic straws have been around for 70 years, and now you see one, you're like, ooh, you're the devil. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I think if we put our mind to it, yeah, it can happen really quickly. But it has to come from consumers saying, no more. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to just keep buying masses amounts of polyester. You were asking, how do we know if it's green or not, or if it's greenwashing? Polyester is basically plastic. It's petroleum-based, and it releases microfibers when it's washed and the microfibers are now in our water system. If we really want to help the planet, we just got to buy less polyester. If you really, really want to go green, then just go back to the old school fabrics, the ones that we had before DuPont Labs created things like polyester and nylon and neoprene back in the 1930s. Go back to those old school ones of silk, wool, cotton, organic cotton if you can find it, and linen, flax. Flax and linen are one of the greenest fabrics out there. It grows with very little water. It grows in poor soil, and it grows abundantly, and it doesn't take a lot of chemicals to refine it. So it's very green. You know, then you know you're making a wise choice. If you can go back to something as simple as that, if you can make that change, it's already enormous. Fashion is a huge problem, and it's just so easy to contribute to that problem to step into a shop and buy another trendy throwaway thing for the weekend. And as with any crisis that affects the whole globe, fixing it will require both systemic and individual pressure. For the latter, Dana Thomas has compiled a list of things from her book that you can do today to reform your wardrobe and the way you care for it. The most important lesson, I think, is to use, love, alter, and mend what you already have tossing your H&M shirt and buying a new one, however sustainable the new one is, is much worse than just wearing the shirt you already have until it's stained and you have to over-dye it or turn it into a rag. We have links to Dana Thomas's list and her new book, Fashionopolis, in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. <laughs> <laughs>